0: I and all past and current members of the ACSS team would like to acknowledge that this podcast is being recorded on the traditional lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people and pay my respects to the Elders past, present and emerging. We also acknowledge the traditional custodians of each of our delegate hubs where many of our listeners will be based. You are listening to the podcast produced by the Australian Crisis Simulation Summit. We are a volunteer student-led organisation who create and run complex futuristic and alternative crisis simulations in a national effort to help create the next generation of national security experts and leaders. We hope you enjoy and learn from this podcast. This is a moment that requires leadership. China is signing security pact and looking to establish a base. People think I don't like China. I love China. The Pacific region has listed climate change as its number one threat. And so, friends, AUKUS is born with a failure to invest in renewables. I want to
1: thank uh, that fellow down under.
0: I just have two more words to say Obama out.
2: Welcome to the second part of my discussion with Dennis Richardson. In this episode, we continue on many of the topics discussed in the last episode, so if you haven't heard that one yet, please do go back and give that one a listen. That's it from me for now. I hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. So I might get into two broad questions before we get into some uh, uh, more maybe current current ones. Um, so I have two. The first one is, uh, in our society, what do you think the role of government is and should be?
1: Yeah.
2: In 10 words or less.
1: <laughs> in 10 <laughs> words or less. Just kidding it is to provide security for the country mm-hmm. uh it is uh to be responsible for the well-being of its citizens and to uh and to provide a governance framework in which uh people can deliver of their best mm-hmm. uh but where uh where uh, where the real needy are also uh, properly looked after.
2: Mm. The second question is um, p- a personal one. Uh, what kind of le- leaders uh, do you admire? Um, provide an example of one or a few, or um, leaders that you respect or, or try and you think they're a
1: good leader. Yeah, it, it's difficult. Uh, all leaders have their own particular personality. Uh, some leaders... Uh, more attractive from a distance than what they are up close. Um, uh, I think if you take Bob Hawke, Paul Keating and John Howard, three remarkably different, uh, you know, personalities, uh, but I think uh, each had... Each had very strong uh, leadership skills, um, and very often you admire leaders in the rear vision mm. rather than at the time. Um, uh, you know, at the moment, from a distance, uh, Zelensky in 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 uh, in Ukraine is mm. is someone who's. You know, globally is doing an extraordinary job. Mm. Uh, if you if you look at um, whether it's an apocryphal story or whether it's accurate, uh, you look at the story that was put out there that the Americans offered him uh, a flight out of mm. out of Ukraine at the time of the invasion, mm. <laughs> and and his response to that. Yeah, uh,
2: I think they all typically compare that response to the response by the Afghanistan leader after the withdrawal of the US forces. Uh, yeah. um, okay, so moving on, um, your U.S. You review, um, 2020 comprehensive review of the Australian intelligence legislation, uh, it's over a thousand pages and it's all worth a read um, for our delegates to understand how the national intelligence community has evolved over time and operates today uh, and the principles that underpin it. Uh, But I want to ask you from a personal perspective, how did you view your role when undertaking the role? Um, Which in itself, it's it's such a big undertaking. How did you kind of go about thinking about how you were going to?
1: Well, first of all, I had a superb secretariat. Um, There was a secretariat of around 25 people, headed by uh, Anna Harmer, uh, who's now a division head in finance. Uh, She was excellent. Um, In fact, I first worked with her After 9/11, she was one of the first people across from the Attorney General's Department to uh, give us more legal grunt after 9/11. Her deputy, Tara Inverarity, and 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 the whole team they were uh, they were they were first class. And quite frankly, uh, the Secretariat consists of a mix of people with legal qualifications out of the Attorney General's Department and people out of the intelligence agencies with operational experience. They were uh, invariably younger. Uh, I think uh, Anna wouldn't mind me saying this. I think she was the only one in the Secretariat aged over 40. Uh, That is, apart from me. And I used to joke with them when I went to the Secretariat. I um, uh, had a meeting and I said, look, I need to explain... uh, why? Why I'm here? I said you might wonder what's an old, white, stale male yeah. doing with a review like this? I said, well, look, you need to think about it. I said, first of all, uh, look around at who's in the secretariat. They clearly need an older person for diversity. Mm. Uh, I said, uh, given that all but four or five of the secretariat are women, uh, clearly uh, their reviewer had to be a male. Uh, I said. If you look at the diversity in the secretariat, I clearly had to be white. Um, uh, so I said, "I think I'm the first old white stale male yeah. ever to be appointed uh, by government on grounds of diversity." <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and they and uh, the secretariat were really, really, really very fine people, and they knew the spirit in which uh, that was said, and. So without that secretariat and depth of intellect that they had, uh, my job would have been genuinely hopeless. Yep. Um, obviously, when you go into a review like that, you've got terms of reference. You've got to be faithful to those terms of reference. You, 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 spend, a, you spend some number of weeks working through how it is you're going to approach it and one of the things that we determined uh, was that uh, we, would, uh, we, would, uh, uh, we would insist where any assertion or claim was made, we would insist on an example. So uh, if, if a claim was made about X, we said, give us a real live example. Now, you can't always do that, and we understood that. But in a good ninety percent of cases, that was able to be done, and those case studies were foundational in determining the direction of the review.
2: Why do you think their secretary was so young? In terms of in terms of the because age?
1: they wanted an older reviewer. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> uh, the look. I don't know the reason for that, but it was very sensible. Yeah. Um, uh, most. Uh, first of all. They were they were fresh, they were hardworking. Mm. They had they had critical minds, and I think I think their their age I think contributed to that. Uh, they all weren't just out of university. Yep. I mean, most of them had been in government. Uh, you know, many of them had been in government for ten years or more. In other words, early thirties, mid thirties, etc. And um, uh, I, I I think. I think their age gave a freshness of perspective. They weren't captured by the past. They weren't captured by how things had always been done Um, and I think that was ultimately a good thing. But creating a team out of people who had never previously worked together, who were a mixture of lawyers and people with hard-edged operational experience, uh, that was a big challenge for uh for uh Anna, Tara and and the other and and the other uh, the other leaders mm. and they did that very well mm. the government
2: response to the report listed i think two hundred and three recommendations yeah. of only four of which were you know disagreed with yeah. um, do you, is that how you kind of uh, measure your success in that only four were or what do you what do you think about the four that <laughs> disagreed i guess
1: well i don't uh, the we had a chat during the, the review with a former Justice of the High Court, Justice Kirby, Michael <coughs> Kirby. And I do not know Justice Kirby well, but I have uh, engaged with him at different points over the years. And he's someone who I respect enormously. He said to me early on in the review, he said, when you're doing something of this kind you must put a premium on getting it right. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, it's important that a review of this kind not be sculptured to suit uh, the convenient politics of the day. Not in a party political sense, but mm. he said, don't sculpture uh, the, the recommendations Simply on the basis of what you think will be acceptable or not, go to foundational principles and philosophy and get it right from there. And he pointed out uh, that Justice Hope uh, in one of his royal commissions in the 1980s had recommended that the defense, that the then defense signals Directorate be established as a statutory uh, entity. Mm. Now, that didn't happen for another thirty-five years. Yep. However, Justice Hope was right in that recommendation. He was as right in the nineteen-eighties as what he would have been today, and that's what that's what Justice Kirby meant by that. And that stayed with me, trying to get it right. So, uh, you don't uh, do two hundred and three recommendations in the expectation that they'll all be accepted. And don't forget, you had some that were accepted, uh, some that were agreed, some agreed in principle, and some uh, disagreed. And when a government agrees with recommendations in principle, you've got to watch that very carefully because that can effectively mean kicking the ball into touch. Uh, So... Uh, you know, but you've got to be philosophical about this. On that
2: point, how do you envision the um, recommendations that you made a few years ago now? um, How do you envision those kind of shaping the future of intelligence operations in Australia?
1: Well, not so much intelligence operations, but uh, the legislative framework around them. Uh, For instance, uh, there is a group of 20 or more people currently in the Attorney-General's Department working through one of the very big recommendations um, in that report, uh, which was uh, a complete re-wi- re- rewrite of the Telecommunications Interception Access Act, that is an enormous bit of work in, in its own right, and uh, we estimated at the time that that would take a good, a good five six years. Mm. So that is being worked through now, and I've I've had one meeting with the people uh, working on that. Uh, on that, on the implementation of that of that recommendation, other recommendations have just been very quietly implemented without anyone particularly noticing them.
2: Yeah, on uh, it's kind of related to the Telecommunications Act, um, but how can the Australian intelligence community, legislation, operations, whatnot, um, adapt and leverage emerging technologies to counter cyber threats and protect national security? Uh, in, other, in other words, how do we stay ahead of the ball? Um,
1: yeah, well, um, I think uh, ASD, ASIS, ASIO invest enormous amount in, in technology. Um, uh, they are always, const- well, constrained is the wrong word. They always must operate within the law. Uh, the people who they're going after don't have to operate in the law, so... Uh, The people, uh, you know, when it comes to cyber security, for instance, those who would seek to uh, penetrate our defences, either government or private, by definition, uh, can use whatever tools at their disposal, regardless of the law. We have to respond in a way that is legal. Mm. Therefore, it's important uh, that the law... Get the right balance between giving agencies the flexibility they need in order to respond quickly and effectively, but at the same time be accountable for their actions, yeah. and that's where the inspector general comes into play, ensuring that that balance uh, is uh, um, uh, uh, is maintained. But when you're in the intelligence community, you always think that the technology is getting ahead of you. You know, you. you I've never spoken to anyone in the intelligence community over the last 30 years uh, who has not thought that the technology was running ahead of them and they are involved in, in a losing game. The good news is that More often than not, they're proven to be wrong.
2: Mm. It's good to hear. Um, Final question before we have a little break. Um, The recent... There were calls recently for the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security to be expanded uh, from 11 members to 13 members. Uh, Do you have a view of those calls? What do you make of those recent calls? Um, Yeah. Yeah,
1: look, I've got no view on that at all. I don't know what the... Uh, motivation or the objective was of expanding it from uh, eleven to thirteen. I think it's important that the parliamentary joint committee on intelligence and security operate as far as possible in a uh, in a bipartisan way. That doesn't mean that there's got to be agreement all mm-hmm. the time, but um, uh, I I I was a little concerned. Um, uh, towards the tail end of the of the previous government, when I thought at different times uh, the chair of the committee was being used as a political attack dog, mm. uh, I don't think that is a good thing. I think it's important uh, that the chair and the deputy chairs of those uh, of that committee uh, operate. Within the spirit, uh, that's uh, that's uh, that's intended, and for the most part,
0: uh, that is the way it's been. I
2: think it's a good place to end it there for a little bit of a break.
0: Are you ready to take your career to new heights? Whatever your goals or passions, postgraduate study can help get you there faster from short courses that can be completed in just six months to dual-discipline master's programs that allow you to specialise in your chosen field, there is no better place to study law, international relations and diplomacy than the Australian National University in Canberra, the nation's law and policy-making heart. Applications are now open at the ANU College of Law. Choose from our flagship Master of Laws, a one-year full-time program open to both law and non-law graduates with five distinct specializations. The Juris Doctor, which is your pathway to becoming a practicing legal professional. Or the Graduate Certificate of New Technologies Law, which is delivered entirely online and explores the rapid advancements of artificial intelligence, automation, blockchain and more on the legal landscape. Best of all, you'll learn from some of the world's foremost experts that include judges and policymakers from across Australia, not to mention legal scholars at the top of their fields in international law, national security, diplomacy and more. Our graduates go on to achieve remarkable success in their careers, making their mark in law firms, government agencies, the international civil service and beyond. So if you're ready to unlock your potential and new career opportunities, study law and change the world at ANU. Visit law.anu.edu.au to explore our programs and begin your journey today.
2: Getting back into it, I want to talk about the region and domestic Australia and um, regional actors. How do you see the region that Australia finds itself in? Uh, And in this region, what are Australia's current primary national interests?
1: I think governments have articulated this pretty well i think uh, we have we have the immediate pacific island countries where china unquestionably is seeking to establish a foothold so we're in competition there southeast asia which i think the current government is now paying more attention to which is to be welcomed Southeast Asia is important in its own right and I believe in both Southeast Asia and in the Pacific we serve our own national interest better when we see the importance of those two regions to Australia in their own right rather than simply seeing them uh, as being in competition with China. I think when you look at the Pacific... And when you look at Southeast Asia uh, uh, purely through the prism of China, I think you, I think you, I think you run the risk of making some amateur mistakes. Yep. Uh, clearly, uh, Northeast Asia is very important to us. When you consider that, uh, when you consider about fifty-three, fifty-four percent of total merchandise exports out of Australia uh, go through the South China Sea to China, mm. Korea and Japan. They're three of our biggest trading partners with China obviously being by far the bigger. Further afield, uh, you've of course got India and the like and all of that's the government's pulling all that together now mm. uh, through, uh, through the quad. Uh, when you look at our engagement with the region... The architecture of it has undergone enormous change uh, over the years. Uh, when I when I joined government, uh, the only uh, the only real multilateral body that uh, that the Australian government was involved in, apart from UN and related agencies, mm. was the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting yeah, right. every few years. Uh, Then in the early 70s, you had uh, the the South Pacific Forum. Then in the mid-70s, we became the first uh, formal dialogue partner with ASEAN. Uh, Then in 1989, you had Prime Minister Hawke's initiative, which led to the creation of APEC. Then you had the development of the APEC Leaders' Meeting, then you had the East Asia Summit in two thousand and six, or thereabouts, and uh, then you had uh, the the uh, G twenty leaders meeting, which first held in two thousand eight. the The significance of all of that uh, there there are, there are the one thing that's common to all of that, and that is it's typical of Australian diplomacy since the end of the Second World War where we have sought to create forums Mm. which the big boys have been at but we've been part of. We've wanted the big boys or the big players Mm. to be around the table and we're there with them. Uh, So that's been quite fundamental. Now with the G20, the East Asia Summit, and the APEC leaders meeting, that means for the first time in our history, we have forums in which we are in regular uh, contact with the leaders of particular countries. Mm. Uh, you know, um, uh, we, we now, our, our, our prime minister is now at the same meeting as the Indonesian president three or four times a year. Mm. We're at meetings now with the heads of France, Germany, some of the European countries, which we never did. Saudi Arabia, South Africa, mm. uh, Turkey. Uh, you know, it it gives us it gives us an engagement mm. which historically uh, we've not had on such a regular and consistent way. And I think that's expanded our view of the world and has placed more demands on us in terms of the way we think about our engagement in the world.
2: Um, in spite of that, do you think that Asia needs some sort of regional security architecture in addition to what we already have? Like what? It might be unwise <coughs> to compare, but something similar to you know, the function that NATO performs in some I sort of
1: see no reason uh, for that. Mm. Um, I think if that does, if that were to happen, mm. that would only emerge over a long, long period of time. Yeah. Uh, we don't have the history in our region that led to NATO. Yep, yep. Uh, so, um, you know, who knows what will emerge over the next fifty years? Mm. But uh, if we do head in that direction, it'll be a slow, a slow path because I can't, I couldn't see India uh, being part of that mm. uh, time, any time in the. Um, in the any time in the medium term
2: yeah do you think it would nonetheless be beneficial for there to be some sort of security Not arrangement necessarily okay. no
1: i i i don't necessarily think so i think the uh, the us has a has an alliance relationship with japan with um with the philippines uh with south korea uh, with ourselves mm. uh it's developing closer relations uh with other Uh, with other countries, Uh, I think, uh, I don't think you could, if you set out to create a a NATO style entity in this part of the world today, it would take you, I think, a minimum of 20 to 30 years, maybe wrong.
2: Mm. On that point about the US in Asia, what is your assessment of the United States as staying power, if you will, in Asia?
1: Um they are part of the region and they see themselves psychologically as part of the region. They're very uncomfortable with the thought of being number two. Mm. Psychologically, they appear to have an obsession with being number one and I think uh, that competition from China alone will keep them engaged. Leaving that aside... They have so many strategic uh, economic and other interests which tie them into this part of the world that uh, I don't see them packing their bags and going home. Um, uh, now, you can't, you can't rule out... Well, leaving, leaving that aside, it's, a, it's also a question about degree of commitment. And, of course, that can fluctuate. Um, for instance, what would a second Trump presidency uh, look like? Uh, that would that puts a question mark over over
2: everything what sort of impact do you think that would have?
1: I think it would be destructive yep. um, uh, when you hear him say that he would settle uh, Ukraine in twenty four hours, uh, you can only assume uh, that would mean walking away from ukraine and and Putin largely gets what he wants mm. whether whether Trump seriously means that or whether it's just one of his mm. grand statements which is not followed up with substance, mm. i don 't know uh, but I think by and large, I would think u uh, s allies would dread the thought of a um of a second trump presidency, but none of them are able to articulate that publicly
2: yeah um the US internal situation seems to be running hot. Um, there's internal division, um, a lot of strife, protests, whatnot. Um, obviously, I don't have the experience that you do, but do you have you observed a change since you were ambassador in the internal politics?
1: Um, well, first of all, the divisions are deep. Mm. Um, there is no question about that. Secondly, you do need some historical perspective. If you go back to the 19th century... Um, you even take the civil war mm. but uh, even even after that uh you go back to uh, periods uh, you go back to the 1960s yep. uh, when cities were uh, were burning uh, in 1968 you go back to the uh, to the Vietnam war uh, think of uh, think of 68 think mm. if you were alive in 1968 Martin Luther King was assassinated Robert Kennedy was assassinated mm. um, um uh, Johnson uh, announced that he would not be uh, contesting the presidential uh, election. Uh, you, you know, you had mm-hmm. enormous un- uncertainty around. Then you go to the 70s and you have Watergate uh, and all of that. So you do need to keep things in perspective. Having said that, uh, the divisions are certainly sharp. When I was there, uh, they were sharp. Uh, when I, I'm, I, I get bemused. Uh, how my democratic friends in the US today speak so warmly of President George W. Bush mm. as being a great public servant. By gee, that wasn't what they said about him when <laughs> I was in I mean. Washington. And the abuse they threw at him was uh, was extraordinary. Mm.
2: Uh, Fair enough. Um, thank you for that. Um, yeah, two more questions. Um on the evolution of intelligence, how has intelligence tradecraft evolved throughout your career and what impact will technology and AI have on this? Uh,
1: look, uh, I'm not... I haven't been in the intelligence community for a long time. And people like myself, you know, they get described by the media as being a top spy yeah. or this or whatever. Well, I've never been a spy in my life, you know. A I've, a I, 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 I headed up ASIO for almost nine years. That doesn't qualify you don't think? (laughs) That doesn't qualify me at all. I think most of the people I worked with in ASIO would have been horrified if I had been out on the streets or out in the field uh, doing the work that they did operationally so I I think you need to keep it in perspective. Uh, The the trade craft has had to evolve with the technology for instance uh, if you look at Border security today. You look at the, uh, you look at facial recognition. You look at the way passports are now controlled. Uh, the, uh, uh, if you like, your traditional spies face a more challenging environment than what they did previously. Mm. All the technology that they can use to their advantage can be used against them. Mm. Uh, so it's. Uh, I, I think what has happened. I think there's been a closer knitting together of the different intelligence agencies. Uh, I think uh, uh, organisations like ASIO, um, ASD and ACES work more closely together uh, than what, uh, you know, uh, now... Uh, It's never been quite as bad as what Mm. some people... Some people say it was hopeless and all that, but they never worked in the organisations then, so they wouldn't know. Uh, But uh, I think force of circumstance have brought them together. Mm. The technology has brought them together, and I think that is a good thing, and they're working better together now than what they have done in the past.
2: That's certainly good to hear. Um, um, On the importance of wargaming, obviously the ACSS... That's the core cool thing that we that we um, yep. offer. Um, in your experience in the APS, did you ever have any experience simulating crisis or war gaming in your career? Uh, any yes. of those that you can share?
1: Yeah, and uh, look, uh, well, the only thing I can share is that it is worth doing. Yep. Uh, it is um, as unreal as it, what it might be uh, when you're doing the exercise. Uh, it, is, it is very... Exercises are fundamental in terms of ensuring... That the processes are properly oiled, and ensuring that they that they uh, that that when the button is pressed, it swings into in mm. into operation quickly and smoothly. Um, also, it's very useful in terms of understanding personalities and who you might be with around the table. So, I I think. Uh, scenario, wargaming, all of that is uh, well worth doing.
0: Mm.
2: Um, do you have any advice to the delegates that will be participating in these simulations about how to view crisis and how to deal with them and, um, you know, kind of deal with lots
1: of information coming in? Yeah, um, apply a critical mind to the information coming in. Uh, try to remain focused. Um, bear in mind that you can't work indefinitely without rest, mm. uh, and that, um, and that uh, you do need to pace yourself. Uh, in a crisis, it's uh, most uh, a lot of crises are not resolved quickly. Uh, therefore, uh, you do need a combination of stamina, uh, uh, patience, uh, and when it comes to the stamina, uh, your Capacity for sound judgment will deteriorate unless you do have proper rest. Yep.
2: Dennis, it's been lovely to talk to you, and I think we might end it there. Um, but before we before we go, um, in ACSS tradition, we'd like to get a few of your must reads, listens, and watches um, that you've been uh, that you'd like to recommend.
1: Um, okay, well, in terms of, I, I love Ben McIntyre's books. He his book about Philby. Um, a Spy Amongst Friends, I think, is a superb uh, examination of, of culture, social, in, intellectual um, interaction um, at the core of the working of a spy and how he was able to operate for as long as what he did and get away with it. It's quite quite extraordinary. Um so I, I think his books are always good. Um, in terms of the movies, Breach, uh, which is about uh, the FBI head of counter-espionage, Hanson, uh, I think that's well worth a look. And A Bridge of Spies, in terms of Cold War classic, uh, I, I think are superb. And also, leaving all that aside... Uh, look, escapism is always good, and you go—you can't go past James Bond.
2: Fair enough. Um, well, I'd like to thank you so much for coming on the podcast, uh, Dennis Richardson. It's been lovely to have you. Uh,
1: thanks very much,
2: Jackson.